From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams. Welcome to Bridging Philly. The recent exit from Greyhound's Filbert Street Terminal to curbside pickup on 6th and Market has exposed the bigger issue of transportation equity and inner city transit. We speak with transportation planners and a city representative to discuss solutions. At the federal level, at the state level, the way that we spend our money, the way that we subsidize different modes, it really reflects our values. Charity Howard searches the city to bring you inspiring stories of interesting people. So as a black man, I have that collective consciousness that can't be broken, so I have to do my job. All that's coming up on Bridging Philly. This is Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. Public transportation is at the heart of most urban centers, and sometimes there exists a struggle for transportation equity. It's become a subject of discussion of late among bus riders in Philadelphia, especially in light of the apparent lack of a municipal bus station. You may have seen riders on Market Street sitting on the sidewalk or on suitcases or leaning against the building in all sorts of weather conditions. And uh, people are pretty much saying that it's unacceptable. Let's get right into transportation equity. Here for the discussion is Richard Montanez. He is Philadelphia Department of Streets Deputy Commissioner of Transportation. Also, Megan Ryerson is UPS Chair of Transportation and Associate Chair at the University of Pennsylvania's Weitzman School of Design. Also with us is Connor Deschmaker, Coalition Manager for Transit Forward Philadelphia, a coalition of Philly-based organizations fighting to improve public transit in Southeast Pennsylvania. We also reached out to the parent company of Greyhound, Flix, and they actually gracefully declined to join us. Welcome. Thank you. Thank Thank you for having us. Well, of course, as we mentioned earlier, things certainly kind of went all the way south after Greyhound's exit from the terminal on Filbert Street, and that they went curbside. Just want to ask you all, um, was the chaos that ensued from that decision not at all foreseen? Like, this is something that we couldn't foresee happening. I guess I'll pose that to you, um, Richard. Was it unforeseen? I don't think it was something we were anticipating in the city. Um, You know, when they left, they left abrupt. Uh, I believe their customers did not get too much notice of their leaving and then created the what's currently the unideal situation of everybody loading and unloading in the 600 block of Market Street. Yeah, because we, you've got inner city bus companies that are running curbside operations in that area. So this actually makes it a pretty big traffic issue as well, right? So, uh, yeah, I mean, we the city and the state spent $400,000 on uh, Market Street bus lanes that we're trying to uh, better SEPTA. And uh, the idea here it was to, when they open up their uh, new store, that they only have, they went from their terminal to 500 square feet. Uh, you know, it was something in the city, we scrambled to accommodate them. Uh, they're supposed to have a single bus loading and unloading, so they... Greyhound has completely changed their model, the way they do things. You know, they're competing, and I guess you guys have seen and reported that they're trying to compete with the Mega, the Bolt, the, you know, all the other low-discount carriers. And so, therefore, in order for them to be able competitive, they had to eliminate their terminal, which was overhead. And so now the city's scrambling to try to correct something. 
Megan, what do you make of this move that just happened? Yeah, I think that, you know, Richard, what you just said, it all comes down to money, right? Yeah. Greyhound took a look at their books and said, does it make sense for us to continue to pay for this terminal? We're going to move to the street. And I think a lot about how at the federal level, at the state level, the way that we spend our money, the way that we subsidize different modes, it really reflects our values. And for Greyhound as a private company, they need to make decisions that a private company is making to stay solvent. It's really at the state and the federal level. How are we taking our transportation money and investing in ways that forward equity and mobility? Right. Because moves like this, of course, affects, you know, those who are using this, especially the vulnerable. We're talking women, children, seniors, so on and so forth. Um, you know, I know that this was a financial decision, but, you know, who's bearing the brunt? Um, Connor, what do you make of this? Yeah, um, I think I'll start by stating that uh, Greyhound no longer owns its real estate, nor does its parent company. When uh, Greyhound was bought by Flixbus, Flix only absorbed the business and not the real estate. The real estate's owned by Alden Global Capital, which is an international hedge fund conglomerate um, that is best known for the way that it has bought um, and strangled local news organizations um, across uh, the United States. So, um, you know, we look at that model as being what is holding our few and what I anticipate will soon be zero uh, Greyhound or Flix-owned uh, bus terminals. This is something that's already been happening across the country, and it's something that we should anticipate going down to zero across the country. So it is going to take city, state, and federal foresight in order to fix and address this problem. What's the hesitation for developing um, a municipally uh, run central bus station? Um, well, I can point to um, some reports or plans or studies that have come in the city of Philadelphia in 2005, 2009, 2016, and in 2020, all that had potential opportunities for there to be a municipal bus terminal. Um, this is something that has been done in cities as diverse as uh, Boston and D.C. And most recently, I was in Milwaukee, which is a much smaller city than Philadelphia and does have um, an intermodal terminal where Greyhound and other services meet with Amtrak, um, as well as being offices for their DOT. So I think that um, this is an opportunity for the city to examine um, partnerships with folks like PPA, um, folks like uh, local government, the owners of uh, 30th Street Station, Brandywine Realty Trust, and the University City District. They're the folks who came up with the most recent plan in 2020. Um, so whether it's through a public-private partnership or a fully public effort, um, I think there are a lot of opportunities and models nationally for how to do this well. I think it's important to reflect on how much what you're discussing would require a set of champions who are really making the idea of a municipal bus terminal a marquee issue. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that, think about airlines and airports. Right. When an airport subsidizes an airline to get a new route, which happens all the time, the, the Cutter flight to Philadelphia, that was a subsidized route for a couple of years. They launched it with subsidies. There's a ribbon cutting and there's media and, and so on. When we get a new intercity bus route or one goes away, it's not big news. It's not a it's not a marquee issue. Is the city looking at anything like this right now? We are currently discussing all possible options, uh, including having discussions with the Philadelphia Parking Authority. Uh, we're having discussions with other private entities 
anything we do, it will go through the public process of the government. Um, we need to be transparent. We need to have hearings and we need to make sure that if it's going to be a public partnership, everybody's included and everybody who wants to participate hears about it and knows about it. Okay. At least people know that it's not like the city isn't looking into it, not trying to do something about it, is not caring about it. There are just proper channels and steps that you have to go through in order to kind of make it happen. There are, and, and you know, the government, uh, we tend to move fast, but not as fast as people uh-huh. want us to. Okay. And, you know, there are still rules and regulations that we need to follow, especially when it comes to uh, bidding uh, a project or even awarding something. Yeah, right. But I think also recognizing that you as the city, you're constantly put in this situation where you have to react, right? This was a, a private business decision to take a business that needed a terminal and to put it on your streets where you have all these other operations. You have local public transit, right? You have pedestrian. You have a major tourist area, right? Um, vendors, so many different things. And so there's only so fast that a city government can react to all of these changes that are happening externally. So as we look at exactly where uh, Greyhound is operating curbside, it has no bathrooms, no benches, no snack machines. How is that possible? Uh, what can be done to improve that? At least if you're going to have curbside, make it so that, you know, people have, you know, a certain amount of, I don't want to say amenities, but, you, you know, a seat, a place to go to the bathroom. So, I mean, they basically took the same model as the other curbside interstate buses that, that are happening. I mean, your Mega, your Bolt, your Follinger, your Flix, none of them have those amenities. Um, if you went to 30th Street Station where Bolt and Mega were at, you went there, there are no bathrooms and all that where they were at JFK. So all they did was a private business looking at other private businesses and just basically copying their model. Okay. And I think that's where the role um, of government comes in um, and of advocacy groups to recognize um, that the lowest cost option for a business is not the one that's necessarily best for customers or consumers. Yeah, I, and I also think it's quite interesting. Like your Bolt and your Mega, your Follinger, we kind of associate them with college students. The reason they were where they are was the bulk of them was your University of Penn, your Drexel, University of Italian says, like those students were taking it versus your Greyhound where you got people who are going, traveling the country and things. So it's two different travelers, but they're, you know, they should be all treated equal. The first buses that were actually out of that terminal were New Jersey Transit. Mm. So three lines of New Jersey Transit that terminated at that terminal came out. The city provided curbside spacing. And yet for that one, I didn't do an interview like this. I wasn't doing, right? So I'll even present it. Is it because it's New Jersey Transit that people didn't care? Or is it because Greyhound hit? Mm-hmm. And now you see people with suitcases and all that. Right. Where New Jersey Transit was mainly business people, you know, coming in daily into Philadelphia, working and then going back to New Jersey. I think uh, a really important thing to illustrate here um, is the volume difference um, in service provided by all these different brands. Uh, The Greyhound brand provides, you know, it's the reason why we know that name the most. Uh, It goes to the most places. It's sometimes the only connection 
for rural communities to urban communities. So that is folks who don't have another means of getting from place to place. That's how they travel um, in the United States. Uh, And it's the most amount of people. So I think that this presents a very different problem than when other services have maybe moved, um, you know, from different sites. So again, I think that's where it comes into having a champion, um, like Megan said, and being able to uh, think bigger um, as far as what passengers deserve, um, what's equitable, um, and how we can use the strengths that government has to be able to provide equitably for folks. Okay. So you asked, is this right or is this fair? You pose that question um, you know, to the city. I would say what's not right is at the federal level, we are not prioritizing or considering the role of intercity bus in knitting the country together, particularly for lower-income travelers. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 103.9 FM. So, of course, this must be frustrating for you, Richard, because you represent the city. And, of course, we're talking about how unfair this, that, and the other thing is. And people are going, Philadelphia isn't doing enough. They're, they don't care. But, of course, that is not the case. Is there something um, that can be done on the federal level or, or that the state can do to help move things federally to, to kind of make these changes? So recently we we did have a meeting with the governor's office uh, and he is very much interested on what the city's planning in the future for this and how the state can uh, aid the city. Um, So what we did mention some of the plans uh, that we're talking about, some of the ideas that have floated and his office is very much interested and wants to be a partner in this. Meanwhile, uh, and Connor, I think you may have alluded to something, but I'm wondering, you know, what approaches have other cities taken that perhaps Philadelphia can model? Um, some models that a lot of my colleagues have brought up in the past are Boston and D.C., which have pretty incredible intermodal stations that have, again, come with champions. It really has come down to large sets of political will um, and the desire to sort of connect to these other modes. Um, and now there's, you know, a short term and a long term here, right? We have an immediate problem that needs to be addressed, which is, you know, traffic in a freshly painted bus and bike lane, um, which is one of very few in our city. And then there's a longer term problem of providing an equitable means of people to get around, um, wait for intercity buses, um, and connect to all the other modes and assets uh, that Philadelphia has to offer. Megan, why should transit planning and equity and justice kind of go hand in hand? And how can it? When we think about the provision of transportation, we have built a system that largely prioritizes the private automobile, which at its core, at its base level, is accessible to those with a private automobile who can continue to pay the cost of a private automobile. So when we do planning, equity-focused transportation planning, we plan for those without that ready access to an automobile and really prioritize their mobility needs, their safety needs, their accessibility to opportunities. And a thing I think that I'll add is, you know, transit equity exists as a similar uh, concept to the right to the city. I mean, it affirms public transportation as a public good. 
which must be welcoming to all and therefore affordable, sustainable, and reliable. That's, you know, our mission as Transit Forward Philadelphia. Uh, though these intercity buses, as we've you know said a million times, uh, are not publicly subsidized nor really thoroughly publicly planned for, they currently go more places than any of our public modes go. More than planes, more than trains. Uh, unless you have a private automobile, this is your option. Um, and our governments must recognize them as utilities that are vital to economic access and success. Um, you know, we're the hub of economic activity in our state and region, um, and everybody deserves access to that. Yeah. There are so many people without reliable access to an automobile that are relying on the network of public transportation, both local and intercity transportation. And I will add, this is not just uh, lower income people who maybe do not have a private automobile or not enough private automobiles for all of the adults in their household. I took the bus here and there was a gentleman in a wheelchair who got on the bus and departed the bus as we were coming here. The bus is a critical lifeline for people who are differently abled. Um, Our public school system for middle and high schools, there's no school bus for the thousands of children who are attending the Philadelphia School District schools. They are given a SEPTA pass. And so when we plan transit, when we prioritize transit, when we prioritize safe crossings and so on, we are prioritizing all of these different groups who have critical mobility needs and whose needs are not being met by the private automobile model. Philadelphia is not going to grow with everybody in a private automobile. We have tiny little streets. We have very dominated parking on the sides of the streets and so on. There's so much to encourage us to do equity-focused planning, plan for those particularly who need public transportation, because it's in all of our interests that public transportation is robust. And Richard, you would agree. And I'm sure the city sees the importance of this. Well, I do. I mean, if you, uh, you know, the city and SEPTA have put out a uh, bus restructuring plan out there. We're trying to take a look at the routes. We're trying to see how we can get more frequent routes, increase the ridership that everybody who uses SEPTA, and how to get people in our uh, best lines, such as the L and the subway. The L and the subway actually showed the might that they had during the Pope, during the Eagles Parade, which we're all celebrated. But, I mean, you're literally moving 8,000 people an hour in those lines. And, you know, so we are trying to restructure. We're trying to put transit to everybody so that everybody can use it. And even in the the current development that you see throughout the city, it's all transit-oriented development. There are no parking lots being built. There's accommodations in our uh, zoning law that allows you to take advantage of some of these regulations And therefore, if you are so close to one of these lines, you are getting a transit credit for this. Okay. Megan, I wanted to ask you uh, another question uh, in your your work. I'm wondering how you go about, you know, gathering data about bike, bus, and and, and road congestion and its impact on commuters. So um, one of the core areas of my transit equity research is on understanding people's experienced accessibility. And what I mean by that is not just, I live here, here are all the grocery stores within half a mile, or here are all the jobs within half a mile. It's 
who am I? What are the transportation options that are really available to me? Do I have an automobile? Do I have a lot of constraints because I have an hourly job, a, sh- a shift job, children who need to get to school and so on? And to take these factors into account and to come up with accessibility models that truly reflect these constraints. Um, One of the reasons I think it's so important to do this is that when we don't consider the person and we just consider geography Mm -hmm. and we say, how many grocery stores do you have within a half mile or so on, you find things like neighborhoods in Philadelphia that are lower income, lower resource, have the same accessibility scores as places in the farther flung suburbs. And my concern is that as planners, we look at these accessibility scores and think of these two places as equal priority for intervention. When, from my perspective, they're not equal priority, right? One has a lower accessibility scores and a high level of financial constraints, and one has a lower accessibility score because possibly it was a choice to move out to a place with lower accessibility. I'm generalizing. There's the suburbanization of poverty, and there's transportation needs everywhere. But when we take a look at things like income, car ownership, um, and we also do interviews and ask people in these neighborhoods what their experience transportation is like, we're able to get a more nuanced picture of where the needs are. Mm -hmm. And Connor, what have you heard as far as complaints from commuters? What are some of the changes that they're talking about, like, you know, wanting to see? Um, Well, I think that um, we recognize that the number one you know, thing is reliability uh, of transportation. Um, in fact, even when placed head to head, people prioritize uh, reliability of service and service frequency above cost, which is something that is remarkable. Um, but it is something that we see in a lot of surveys. Um, that's not to say that we should neglect cost as a factor. I want to make that abundantly clear. But when we're talking about the most important, it's operations. That creates a unique challenge um, in our region because of the impending operating deficit for SEPTA and public transportation systems across the country. Um, Because of changing commute patterns and the fact that we've designed all of our systems around commuters, um, that means that, you know, when they aren't doing the same things they've done, our models don't work. Um, So when we talk about the things that need to shift It's flexibility of funding to be able to move more fluidly between use of capital and operations dollars. Um, It means being able to provide more frequent service. It means implementing things like the reimagining regional rail vision that SEPTA has, uh, which would take the fact that we have incredible infrastructure in our region. But sometimes these dozen or more mile-long rail lines run every two hours. What utility is that? So um, I think that the more that we can connect people through these kinds of um, operational changes, we're not like other regions in the sense that we need to build a public transportation system from scratch. It's a matter of utilizing them effectively. I think reliability, when we think about transit equity, is such a key point. And and transit agencies are conditioned to plan on ridership numbers, right? What are the lines that have the highest ridership? Let's prioritize them. And that's very natural. It's a very natural, focused metric. But what we find with equity-focused planning is that it's really focused on reliability. Can I get 
to where I need to go with some reliability, with some predictability. Uh, my team and I did 400 onboard surveys of SEPTA's newest bus line or newest bus line a couple of years ago, the Route 49, which was really an equity-focused uh, bus line plan uh, connecting lower resourced, uh, more vulnerable areas of Philadelphia that did not have a reliable transit connection, particularly uh, to 30th Street Station and Penn and the medical complexes and, and so on. And the number one thing to come out of those surveys was that the bus didn't necessarily attract new SEPTA riders. It attracted SEPTA riders who had this circuitous commute with multiple connections, and it gave them this high-quality connection to the biggest employers in the region. And that changes people's yeah. lives, but doesn't necessarily bear out on a, a balance sheet of saying, right, where are my new riders? Am I getting a lot of new riders? And so equity-focused planning can be shifting our perspective and saying, you know, these new metrics are what are the most important. Are we providing more reliability, particularly for the transit dependent? You know, I, I truly appreciate this dialogue that we're having. I'm certainly learning a lot. And hopefully, you know, commuters that are listening have a better perspective on, you know, between city, state, and, and federal, and all that's going into trying to hopefully alleviate uh, some of the problems that we've brought up. But I do want to give the final word to Richard Montanez, um, just to sum everything up and kind of um, bring into focus what the city is doing, what the city's perspective is, and what the city hopes to see with regards to this issue. What would you like people to know? So the city is is not only I mean is working with all stakeholders, all all the inner inner city bus providers. I mean we're we're working with Flex, Greyhound, Peter Pan, Fullinger, Mega. So we are working with all of them to try to solve this problem, to find something in common, and 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 to let them be part of the table. And now that the state and the city, I think they're all realizing that this is something we do want to solve. We want to make it work for everyone. The advantage to where the Greyhound Terminal was, was this proximity to SEPTA. You know, mm -hmm. you could take PACO, you could take SEPTA uh, to get to it. Now, it, you know, we want to make sure that the same uh, facilities are there wherever we decide to put it, that you're not taking Market Street and all of a sudden you got to walk all the way up to Callahill. I'm just using that as an example, but it will not be helpful for the riders. And the fact that, like we mentioned in this conversation, you have people getting off the inner city buses and getting into public transportation to make their final connections. And Connor mentioned a bunch of studies, and one of them was the Amtrak station, uh, which the city is still uh, looking at that study along with the state because that just makes kind of you're connecting Amtrak, you're connecting SEPTA, you're connecting the, the buses, you're going to connect NJ Transit uh, to all to, so that it's a complete system. You know, so that you're able to change from one mode of transportation to the other. Uh, and by that, I mean public to private. I don't mean bus to, but, you know. Mm -hmm. right. um, so we are looking at all this. And it's, it's not going to be a simple. I mean, there's been numerous studies on this. And, and whatever solution we come up with, we do realize we, we need an immediate solution, an uh, intermediate solution. And then there's ultimately long-term solution, uh, as other cities and all that have floated their studies to us to review New York just floated out uh, theirs to us about, um, you know, they're using how the Port Authority and then they're passing ordinance of now they're not allowing curve stops. All of them have to go into the terminal. Mm. Um, 
So we'd also do realize that does require legislation on the city side yeah. where you're going to have to ban these buses from being out once we do any of this. But we're trying to work together. Uh, city council is looking to have hearings on this issue. And we're hoping when we get back in September uh, to have an issue. But we're also hoping to have a resolution way before that in the short term to provide some amenities for all the uh, riders. Richard Montanez, Megan Ryerson, Connor Deshmaker, thank you so much for joining us for this discussion. Appreciate your time. Thank you for thank having you. us. Thank you. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. If it's happening in Philadelphia, Shara Day Howard knows all about it. Here's the latest, Shara in the City. Eddie's House in North Philly is a growing nonprofit founded by a beloved community matriarch, Marion Campbell. And for 13 years, the organization has provided one-on-one -on -one support, resources, and tools for the community with the hopes of helping those suffering from trauma, homelessness, and hopelessness to break through with dignity. And the goal is empowerment through community mentoring, where members of the community work with the organization, sharing their stories and uplifting those out of darkness what they call credible messaging. Drew Lawson with Eddie's House is one of those voices, shining a light for others to follow, sharing his experiences of a man who has been in and now out of prison, but every day shows his community how to turn a breakdown into a breakthrough. So we made a stop at Eddie's House at 2321 North Broad Street to meet up with Drew and learn more. Thank you so much for welcoming us here. This is an ecosystem, like you, it's a little courtyard, it's trees, there's a lot of vegetation, but we also got like our veggies grown. We got sage, cilantro, tomatoes, squash, onions, you know, uh, what else? Something else is in there too. We got to get it all sorted out because the rain made everything grow so fast. But just coming in here is peaceful. And it's crazy that you could be on Broad Street and this is kind of like secluded a little bit. So yeah. this, I think this invites people more than the energy we bring. But you got to speak to a building, though. Like one thing I've learned is everything is connected. To get more understanding of that connection, Giroux gave me a one-on-one -on -one tour of Eddie's house. about it is, like I told you, we had to clean the whole building out. We had to talk to, we had to create this space. So everything is in transition. So initially, Eddie's house only had three offices on this floor. And then the goal was always to work, 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 work till we can get the whole building. And you did it. And then now we got the whole building. So after the tour, we went back outside to what Giroux called his eco haven, the community garden, to have a simple but in-depth conversation. First off, this is Eddie's house. So I like to say everything is powered by Eddie's house. Hey, we're at Eddie's house. <laughs> so we got Cornerstone Drop-In Center. This is our brick and mortar. We fill in gaps in your life. So stuff from where if you just want to come in and take a shower, you can come in and take a shower. If you want to come get food, we got clothes. We do high school diploma program. We got CCIP, which is Community Crisis Intervention Program. Eddie's House is powering that. I'm also the coordinator supervisor of that. So I'm the director of Cornerstone Drop-In Center and I'm the coordinator of CCIP Eddie's House. You're right, you do wear a lot of hats. Yeah, but how I was brought into the fold with Miss Marion, she's the executive director and founder of Eddie's House. But they was already in existence right. doing they one. But the whole two. point was to give you a path to being your best self. Yes. It was like, okay, I want to give you a blank canvas to be able to basically create for Eddie's house, but not leave your stuff on the wayside. And then we can kind of be collaborators. So even with CCIP, I'll give you all a story about if you stay ready, you don't got to get ready. 
she came to me she said listen we're going to do this credible messenger thing i want you to be a part of it eddie's house has been in existence for 13 years they started off doing housing support for young folks aging out of foster care but then you know you got to have that holistic approach school and you're not going to be able to help people without that right. so she started realizing housing came with work came with school came with you had to serve whole family so we they was doing uh family group decision making and here i come now ccip comes up so it's committed community mentors good brother by the name of tyrone mars he's our program director for ccip and then you got eddie's house is the big dog they don't want power and everything and they was going to bring me in and say you know psa programming right. you're going to be one of the so i did have my 501c she okay. still didn't shrink me away from the opportunity i was on all the meetings i helped put it together and everything but it showed me something about business at that point mm. you know what i'm saying here this mm -hmm. is what families need for someone to look at them point at them and say it's you yes. i'm investing in you and, and that's, that's what happened a, that's a funny thing like uh carlita she is our intake specialist so she really is the assistant director she right, let's really talk to carlita real quick you, your position here, what does it mean to you? It means everything to me because I help my community and what I do, I do everything. I just help the people who come to Eddie's house. To and I'm watching you now, you're making sure people are fed, you're making sure things are organized. You're like a, not only a right hand woman, but you know, you've easily got your own lane. I easily. <laughs> It was created for me, so you know, and I just stepped into it. So, you know, once you see the opportunity, you just go with it. So The story about Carlita that's so dope for me is like, that's like my sister, you know what I'm saying? And I was giving out food before I got this opportunity. I was giving out this food up uh, with Cemetery. So her mom came first, Miss Karen, shout out to Miss Karen. Her mom came first seen what I was doing. We started talking. I told her about my experience in jail. Like I just gave her the whole thing. And she was like, you, you showed yourself, you I showed you who you are. My son and my daughter would love to do this work. So I don't know if it was that day she went and got her and brought her back or it was like the next Saturday, I think she brought her, but she hasn't left since. Like we've been to the point where we got a crib together. <laughs> we work here together every day. Like that's really like my little sister. And she believed at a time when it was like, what are we doing here? Because I kind of up in the air. Right. Now, I literally came in here and had to clean the place out. Like, so what's different for me? And again, Miss Marion, I always got to That's the queen. That's the head honcho. Like when she said about painting, giving me a canvas and letting me paint it like she was being literal. Because when she showed me this building, it had to be cleaned out and everything. So what I did was I said, you know, I did 20 years in prison. You know, I came home 2018. And me and Miss Mary have been rocking out for about 18 months now. Wow. This took you five years to build, yeah. five years to come yes. back to the community and find yourself and then find a place in the world. Nah, and, and that's a real thing because when you say the place in the community, one of our like taglines that we say was uh, love, support, and grace. And when I came home, I had to figure out my space. It, it's one of those things I had to learn about who I was as a black man. So I started reading our history crazy. Like I have a real intimate relationship with books. And me gaining identity, it would allow me to know what I did wrong, where I needed to go, what I needed to be doing, what my role really was as a man. And I learned that's what I was searching for when I got into the trouble. She brought me into the building day one, probably seeing how my brain was already working because we met in a restorative justice circle and I'm a restorative justice uh, facilitator and trainer with RCI. What don't you do? We do that here too, you know what I'm saying? So she brought me here and was like, what they offering you? 
I'm gonna offer you some more. You know what I mean? But what she offered me more wasn't really, it wasn't money. It was somebody who was very transparent. She's not a gatekeeper. She didn't, everything that goes on from how the money is being spent at the top to the bottom, she gives me that like, all right, Jerude, this how much money we just got from here. This is what we trying to do. So I was like, it's very rare for you to go into a space where somebody who don't have to because of the position she holds. And that's what you're doing today. And, and you're making sure, you know, you pay it forward. I want to make this like a legacy thing where it's like in two years, I'm doing something else and somebody else is sitting in the seat that I created because she allowed me to create it. I didn't come into a director's seat where all I had to do is sit in the office and bring my stuff in the office and the staff is there to build it. I really cleaned the rooms. I brought the people in, got people to volunteer and it's still moving like that. So next for me is being with Miss Marion do like being able to walk up to someone and be like, all right, you want to do X, Y, Z? Well, I'm going to help you do that. So it's important to me because first and foremost, when I look in the mirror, I'm a black man. So as a black man, not only am I, I have that, uh, it's a collective consciousness that can't be broken. So I have to do my job. So you were called, you're answering your calling, and you're making sure other people speak the language and hear the call. Yes, all day long. Like, you got to know who you are all day. And identity education is like real power. Knowing who you are and what you stand, what you represent. Bridge and Philly, thank you for being here. Can I give a shout out to all my credible messages real quick? Roll call. So I want to, you know, shout out Wasima Young, uh, Armstead Harris, my man Axis and Arrows, my brother Zubari. Shout out to Miss Marion. Shout out to Carlita, Tyrone Mars, brother. It's so necessary. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You make me feel like I'm a little bit important. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly, at Raquel on Air, and at Shara Day. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. For Shara Day Howard and our producer, Patty McMahon, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well. <laughs>